Welcome to Rock Harbor Church's channel on Sermon Audio. We hope this message is a blessing to you and helps you in your daily walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, settle in and grab your Bibles. Here's Pastor Brandon with this message. I tell you what, when you look at all that stuff, you realize that if you didn't have God, this would scare the the daylights out of you, man, because it's so out of control and it's so evil and it's getting so bad. Um, and I, I think the only thing that gives me sanity is to know what God has said in his word and what he's going to do, um, because otherwise I would lose it, man. And I think that's what most of the world, they, they see it, but I think they just bury their, their head in the sand, pretend it's not happening, how crazy things are. Um, but that's not gonna protect them from the reality of what's really happening. So we're gonna enter into chapter eight of Daniel. Um, and this is a very interesting chapter. This is a history chapter. And um, this is a, it's a tough one to preach because there's so much history involved. But what I wanna do is show you that through the history that God predicted and has already happened, that the point is this history is so accurate as far as prophecy is concerned, that many skeptics believe that Daniel was written after all this happened because it is so accurate. And so that's why a lot of skeptics go after Daniel. It's funny, the two books that the skeptics go after is Daniel and Revelation, and then Genesis would be third. And anyway, this, this details what's gonna happen in the near future, and then next week we'll look at Daniel predicts out what's going to happen in the far future, in our time. But here's the interesting thing. When you learn about this near future that we're going to see today, it is a typology. It is a typology for the Antichrist. Okay? So um, we're going to go back to school, I guess. We're going back to history. Uh, we're going to do some history lessons. But I promise you, I will connect it with with. Um, current events, I will connect it with application, but um, this is a pretty academic um, type of sermon, so I apologize, but there's no way around it, and that's what happens when you preach verse by verse, you have to just take the verses as they come, and it's there for a reason, and I'll show you why it's there, and what we're going to look at is Daniel's ram and goat vision, and uh, the context is um, he's going to have a vision of the near future of Alexander the Great taking over Medo-Persia. And that's what we're going to explore. But remember, it's a typology for the Antichrist, and it has personal application for us, because here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to dig into Alexander, uh, Alexander the Great's life, personal life, and I want to show you how God touched him and Alexander's response to God. Um, so... It's, it's fascinating. It's actually fascinating when you study Alexander the Great. Anyway, let's start there, and let's understand this before we jump in. The text now switches to, back to Hebrew. So uh, Aramaic uh, from chapters 2, 4 uh, through seven twenty-eight. Why? Because God is speaking to the Gentiles. This is what will happen with the Gentiles. Now we're moving in chapter 8 back to, to Hebrew because the Hebrew is talking to Israel. And so that's why there will be a change in the, um, the um, languages. Anyway, let's start. 
In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, this is 551 BC, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. The, 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 the other vision he's referring to is what's in chapter 7, where the four, he sees the four Gentile kingdoms, he sees the Antichrist, and he sees the one world government and all that. When we studied that, he says, well, this one uh, appeared after this, this period of time, okay? So this is what we're going to study. Now, um, remember it says that, it, oops, where's my thing? That it says it happened in, in the reign of Belshazzar. This vision happened before the handwriting on the wall started. And so Belshazzar is going to, he's going to hear about this, and this is probably what ticks Belshazzar off to go, go into the storehouse and take out the Jewish articles that they stole from the temple, and then remember he had a feast using the, the articles, the cups, the goblets, all the stuff that came out of the temple, and remember they had a feast, and then of course that night it ended, and Medo-Persia took over. Okay, that's why most scholars say what you're about to read was Daniel told Belshazzar this, and he went ballistic. He was, he was angry, and that's why he desecrated the things. Again, it's a theory, but it's a pretty good theory based on the timeline of what you see before the handwriting on the wall happened. Okay, I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that, that I was by the river Ulai. Now, here's the thing. We know Daniel was in Babylon when he received this vision. So what happened is the vision took him to the location in Elam. You know where Elam is? Iran, okay, by the Persian Gulf. And so in this vision, he was taken to the, this city, Shishan. Now here's the thing about Shishan. Shishan was a pretty thriving city. But once Persia took over, this would be the capital of the Medo-Persia Empire under Cyrus. So basically, God projects him 200 years into the future and says, this is what's going to happen at this location. This will be the, the capital of the new empire, which is predicted in Daniel chapter 7, and, and then eventually rule the world at that point in time. So again, he's taking there to see it. <clears throat> Susa, or Shusha, is right here in modern-day uh, Iran. This is where Elam is, as you can see on the, the, uh, on the map. Interesting, uh, I think Jeremiah 49 predicts that something will happen in Elam in the end times where it, it appears it might be a nuclear bomb that goes off in the area. By the way, that's where Iran has a lot of their... Uh, nuclear facilities is in Elam. So anyway, uh, if you read that passage, it appears that that happens in the future. Something happens in Iran with a nuclear bomb. Something goes off where the people can't live there anymore. Anyway, a lot of activities happening in this area. Anyway, this is where he was taken to in a vision. And again, the king would have been 200 years later, Cyrus the Great. So why is Susha, or Susan, or Susa, or whatever, however you want to pronounce it, why is it so important? Well, 
Queen Esther was there. Remember, it became the capital of, of Persia. And remember the whole book of Esther. Esther was the queen there. The other guy that came out of Susa was Nehemiah. And Nehemiah obviously went back to build the walls of, uh, of Jerusalem. You remember that. So key biblical characters had interaction in this area. So Daniel was there to, uh, you know, in a vision, and then Esther comes, and then obviously Nehemiah. Here are some remains of the city. Uh, um, you can see some of the archaeological remains that remain untouched. And here are some areas of where Daniel would have been, Esther, Nehemiah. And there's a fortress that's still there that they have kind of rebuilt to kind of show you this is what it would have looked like. This is re- rebuilt on the same area. Anyway, um, if you're a, a history buff, this is where the Code of Hammurabi was found. Um, and the Code of Hammurabi was the oldest legal text we have ever had in history. Uh, it was Babylonian, but it was found there in Susa. So uh, composed 1755 uh, B.C. Interesting stuff. Now, I've showed you this before, but in the area of Susa is where possibly Daniel is buried. And um, you can see this cone-shaped thing, and then what happened is that cone shape there was there a long time ago. And then the Muslims built a mosque around it, and of course, they revered Daniel. Um, I, for, for what reason, I don't know, but they do. And anyway, they have a mosque built there, and you can see the kind inside the, uh, the, the kind of the court of the mosque. And this is an old time picture I found um, before any of the modern society was built around Susa. This is just the remains. I mean, you see where the cone shape is. Okay, that's how it looked. Now, modern day times. Let's see if I have a modern day picture. Hold on. Yeah, you see the city around it now. So this picture shows you how ancient that burial site of Daniel was. It was there before there was any inhabitants. So I don't know how far this picture goes back, but there it is. It was, it, it's, it's, the, the idea is Daniel was buried there once he died. Um, inside, I think I've showed you this. This is the tomb of Daniel, supposedly. You can go inside and see it, and that's what people do. They flock to see it, and it has all these ornate things. And again, the idea that is Daniel is buried in Susa. So... He had the vision in Susa, so he ends up dying in the capital of uh, Persia. Anyway, let's go back to the text. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram, which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Now, if you know anything about history, this is a reference to Medo-Persia, okay, the ram, and it's interesting because you're in the area of Babylon, okay? And this is where uh, all the false religions came from in this area, okay? And spread through the Fertile Crescent. Well, anyway, uh, what Babylon had created was the, the zodiac signs. Do you remember that? The zodiac signs, and they saw them in the stars and whatnot. Well, anyway, what Babylon had done with its religion is put those zodiac signs on all the different regions of the world. Now, this is very interesting. So, in the region 
of Babylonia, Persia, the Fertile Crescent, the Babylonian religion gave it the zodiac sign of Aries. And Aries is a ram. Interesting, isn't it? God is trying to locate this place to Israel, even condescending to use how the pagans designated the area. That's amazing. Notice the ram's horns. It has two, two horns. Two represents Medo, Median and Persia coming together to form a one united nation. Okay? And the two horns were high because of power. Horns represent power. But one was higher than the other. Okay? One of the horns is stronger than the other. That would be Persia. Even though Persia was a little province, it actually was stronger under Cyrus and then dominated Medo-Persia. And, and it says the, uh, the, the higher one came up last. That's Persia. Me, Median was in power, but it didn't have the kind of power that Persia did. So Persia then takes over. So it's the horn that's coming in last and has the higher horn. And so basically Persia led Medo-Persia. That's what the vision is saying. It's extremely accurate. When you look at this, this is predicted, but it happened to the detail in history, just as God said. Absolutely amazing. This is why a lot of uh, skeptics do not want to call this prophecy. They want to call it history because it's so accurate. Anyway, I saw a ram pushing westward, northward, and southward so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any who could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and become great. This is exactly what the Medo-Persian Empire did once it destroyed Babylon. The idea of pushing westward, it went into all the way up into Thrace, into Greece. Southward, it went around the Fertile Crescent, down and took over Egypt, and you can see all the green area it took over. And then northward, it went all the way up into the Black Sea area, the Caspian Sea, uh, and in, even in what we call the stands today as it pushed forward. It was massive, absolutely massive when it, it was, at, was at its height. <clears throat> now let me jump to verse 15 because an angel is going to explain it to Daniel. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, that I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Okay? So Gabriel is the messenger angel for God, right? And we saw Gabriel announcing the Messiah's birth to Mary that she would conceive, right, of the Holy Spirit. So this is Gabriel. And, and Gabriel is one of the main messengers of God. He stands in the presence of God. So, but he's an angel. So because he's an angel, he's in the third class of angels. He's not a cherubim, he's not a seraph, he's an angel. And angels do not have wings. They appear as young men. That's why Hebrews will say we sometimes entertain angels unaware because they will always look like young men. Always. There's no females. They're just all young men. So Gabriel's part of that class of messengers with no wings. Okay? Michael is also another one. 
and we assume that the person speaking to Gabriel is Michael since we're dealing with Israel because Michael is the chief prince of Israel as far as the guardian angel of the nation. And so anyway, um, Gabriel's going to speak to them, to, to, or, or, or Gabriel is spoken to perhaps by Michael to tell him, explain this to him. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, this is an interesting phrase. This time of the end, Daniel, uh, sorry, um, the vision will extend not only to the near future, but into the far future, into our time, into what we're experiencing right now with a one world government getting to form. So it stretches a long span. And that's typically how prophecy goes. You have a prophecy given, but there'll be a near fulfillment and then a far fulfillment. And in this sense, there's another aspect going. It's a typology. It's a typology for the Antichrist, okay? So keep following with me. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep which my, with my face to the ground. But he touched me and stood upright. And he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. Now, the indignation is another word for the great tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, Jacob's trouble. So he incorporates that into it. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. And he'll explain that. Verse 20. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. So right there it tells you. Now you can understand why the skeptics would come in and say, look, that was redacted. That was, that was written in way, before, uh, right, way after that happened. There's no way they could have got that correct. This was predicted way before, hundreds of years before Alexander the Great. Now, the ram then represents Medo-Persia. As we saw in Daniel 2, it, on the metallic man, it represents the chest with the folded arms. How many arms? Two, because two empires have joined together. Then when you go to Daniel 7, which is God's perspective on Medo-Persia, it's a, bear, a lopsided bear with three ribs in its mouth. Three ribs represent the kingdoms it took over to get control, and the lopsidedness represents that Persia is stronger than Medo-Persia, or Media. So therein lies the coalescence of the three visions put together predicting Medo-Persia. Okay. And I was considering suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Now notice where the goat comes from. The goat comes from the west, right? And notice what it does. It goes across the surface of the whole earth. So the idea is it's not walking on the ground. It's almost flying across the whole earth. So that what this represents is how fast this empire moves. It moves extremely fast, almost like it's flying. And then it will take over the entire earth at that time. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. The horn represents power. So this goat has one horn, which is extremely powerful. Okay? Also, remember, according to the Babylonian zodiac, 
the different regions had zodiacs put on that region. In Babylonia, Persia, the region is Aries, right? A ram. In the western region, which it concluded Syria, all into Asia Minor and into Greece, the sign was the goat. And you know in the zodiac, it's called Capricorn. You ever heard of that? Okay. So again, God is using the pagan designations of the land to tell Israel, these are the people that are involved. So this is the Capricorn area, and this is against coming against Aries area. Okay. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. So he explains it. The, the angel Gabriel explains it, he identifies. The large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. And who would that be? It's Alexander the Great. He's the horn of the kingdom of Greece that's going to take over Medo-Persia. Okay. So Alexander the Great lived from 356 B.C. to 323 B.C. Um, he was a young man when he took um, his role as king. His father, Philip, had been assassinated. Um, he was going to, Philip was going to actually attack uh, Persia. But then in, in his Going over to the area and through Asia Minor, he was assassinated, apparently. And again, there's, I read some history on this, and they don't know who did this. They don't, some speculate it was actually Alexander that did this, and some expect that an assassin uh, came from Persia and killed Philip. Again, I, there's no details on that. We, we just know he was taken out, and then Alexander becomes king of Macedonia, and um, when he was 20 years old, he's only 20, but he is sharp. This guy, man, I studied some of his um, military tactics that he did. The guy was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I don't know how he knew this. Well, maybe I do know how he knew this. Do you know who his teacher was up until the age of 16? Thank you, David. I knew David would know, the historian. So an uh, uh, unknown, an unknown guy we've never heard about, now the name of Aristotle, tutored Alexander the Great until he was 16. He had the best education. He was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. His military tactics were absolutely brilliant. Just, you should read up on this one day about his, what he did as a military man. Unbelievable. Anyway, he takes the reins, and then he is going to come up against Medo-Persia. I'll explain his motives in just a bit. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I'd seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. Now, this is amazing that God put in there the word furious. Furious power. No doubt Alexander the Great had power. But think about this, but his power was different. Alexander the Great took on Medo-Persia with 50,000 troops. Medo-Persia had hundreds of thousands of troops, including 10,000 of the immortals. 
And that number never changed. They, if someone got out of the immortals, they just replaced the immortal uh, that left or died with another immortal. So they had 10,000 immortals, but hundreds of thousands of armies. And Alexander the Great takes them with only 50,000, but he has military uh, cunningness. And that's how he did it. Anyway, the furious. Let's talk about the furious power. This actually corresponds with exactly what was happening on the ground with Alexander the Great, Macedonia, and the rest of the Greek states. What really happened was this was a patriotic retaliation for Persia's failed invasion of the Greek mainland a century earlier. Okay? The first invasion came from Darius I in 492 to 490 BC. The famous Battle of Marathon was at, that, at this uh, juncture. And so you've heard about the Battle of Marathon. Well, that's what happened. Well, the Persians attacked. Um, Greeks fought them off, but they weren't done. Because right behind it, Xerxes I, his son, goes after Greece as well. In 480, 479 B.C., and you had the famous battle of Thermopylae. You remember the 300 Spartans that held off a pass? Well, that pass was, the, the Persians figured out how to go around them, and they flanked them, and then all the 300 were killed. But everyone remembered that, right? Sparta was not part of Macedonia, but he's, um, as a great political strategist, Alexander will use these attacks to unite the Greek states to come together. Look, the, the, a lot of the Greek states thought Macedonia was a bunch of barbarians, that Alexander was a barbarian and didn't want to have anything to do with him. So what he did is he used propaganda to unite the Greek states and said, hey, look, look what they did to our brethren. They attacked us. We need to retaliate about this and, and settle the score. We're not going to put up with this. And so he was able to propagandize all the Greek city-states to come together and fight with him. Anyway, there were several uh, great battles that pushed the Persians back. The Greek Navy uh, victory in Salamis, the Battle of Plataea, and the Battle of Michal. Anyway, that's what happened previously from Persia. So they're ticked. They're ticked off. They're mad that this has happened twice. And caught, I mean, they burned Athens down to the ground. And so this was a, a black eye to the Greeks. And so the fury that God puts in the text is exactly the propaganda that Alexander the, uh, the, uh, the Great used to unite them to attack Medo-Persia. People were angry that the Medo-Persians had done this to them. And so actually that's what was used to get them all to attack. Isn't that brilliant? And God predicted they're going to be angry. They're furious. And they were. Now this is interesting. This is a letter from Alexander the Great to Darius III. Make no mistake, Alexander the Great tells Darius his motives. Your ancestors came into Macedonia and the rest of Greece and treated us ill without any previous injury from us. I, having been appointed commander-in-chief of the Greek 
and wishing to take revenge on the Persians, crossed over into Asia, hostilities being begun by you. He says, you drew first blood, we're taking our revenge on you. Exactly how God predicted it. You can't get more accurate than that. Isn't that amazing? And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him and attacked the ram. Now here's the interesting thing. There are three parts to this vision right here about the battle. And all three parts correspond to the three battles Alexander fought to take over Medo-Persia. So this one, confronting the ram, he was moved with rage against him and attacked him. This happened May 334 BC. The forces of Alexander first met and defeated the Persians at the Granicus River in Asia Minor. <clears throat> where Asia Minor, we're basically in the area of Constantinople in that area, where you have the, 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 just a, a small uh, outlet. I think it's the Black Sea or Caspian Sea, one of the two. This is a black, right. The Black Sea comes through in between Asia Minor and the west. On the tip of Asia Minor, this is where this battle happened. And this is the first point of the scripture. Second point. And broke his, his two horns. This aspect of the prophecy happened in November 333 BC. A year and a half later, a battle occurred at Isis near the northeastern tip of the Mediterranean Sea, up above where Lebanon would be, where, eight, where Turkey and Lebanon meet right there in that juncture, more, more in uh, Turkey, but right in there is where he fought this battle, and he broke the horns. Stage number two is done. Now we move to stage three. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. This is when the power of Persia was finally broken. And I'm trying to pronounce this correctly. Guagamela, near Nineveh in October 331 BC. That is absolutely amazing. How the scripture is telling you phase one, phase two, phase three. And we look at history and it corresponds to the three wars that Alexander the Great fought to take over Persia. Do you now see why people say this was written at a later date? This, they could not have predicted this. It is so detailed. Amazing, isn't it? It blows me away. Now, that's your history lesson. Now let's get, let's get to the spiritual lessons. Alexander the Great takes over Medo-Persia. He becomes king of the world at that point in time. But he still is, he has more people to conquer. So he goes into and takes Tyre and Sidon. At Tyre and Sidon, he sends a message to the high priest of Israel and says, look, you better bow down to me because I'm coming through your area. The high priest of Israel then responds and says, I cannot do it. I have swore allegiance to Darius III and I cannot do that. Well, it's left like that. And you know what, how Alexander the Great felt? He was ticked. Someone's not going to bow down to me? Uh-uh. So anyway, he goes in there, uh, goes through, he goes down into Gaza, takes the Gaza area, 
and then is now going to move up into Jerusalem and attack Jerusalem and take it down. But then, the night before he enters into Jerusalem, the high priest, this is according to Josephus, the high priest has a dream. And in the dream, the voice in the dream told the high priest, tomorrow, when Alexander the Great comes through, I want all of you to be dressed in white, except for the high priest. I want the high priest in full regalia. I want the high priest shall be in full regalia. When you go out to meet him, have your high priestly gear, uh, uh, or sorry, clothes on, and have all the other priests dressed in white linen, and then go out to meet him, for he will not hurt you. So the next day, the high priest told him to do this. They put on white on the rest of the priests. He put on his full regalia as the high priest. And, and he came out and they came out and they welcomed Alexander the Great to Jerusalem with the high priest leading. Something interesting happens at that point in time. Something triggered in Alexander the Great's mind. And this is amazing. Alexander looked and was shocked to what he saw. He saw the high priest and he saw the guys in, in white robes. And you know what happened in Alexander's the, uh, mind? He had just had a dream before this time. And in the dream, he saw the high priest of Israel in full regalia. And he saw all the Levit Levitical priests in white dressed to meet him. And when he saw them and he connected to the dream he had, and in the dream he was told, in the dream, you will conquer everything. It, it stopped him and he paused and says, this is exactly the dream. And the dream says, I'm going to conquer. It turned Alexander the Great around to where now he saw his mission as ordained by God, the God of the Hebrews. And it changed everything about him. After this, well, let me, let me show you something else. This was found in archaeology in the 5th century in a, a synagogue up there, and I don't know if I can pronounce this correct, Hukok. It's up in, in the northern Galilee area. It had been buried and no one had found it. So they dug up this old synagogue from the 5th century. And the mosaic is right here in front of you of what they dug up. That is Alexander the Great, and that is the high priest. And look what color of clothes they're wearing. White. Which is exactly what Josephus said happened. And now you have a mosaic in archaeology proving that it, it did happen. This was what happened here with this whole dream thing with Alexander the Great. So what happens? They brought him in. Can you imagine? They brought Alexander the Great in, and they opened up the scriptures. And of course, it would be on a scroll. And they showed him Daniel chapter 8. The very passage you're studying today was shown to Alexander the Great and said, our God predicted you. You are predicted to be the world ruler this is you in here. You are the he-goat. You are the shaggy goat. 
with the horn. That's you. You will, you will be the, 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 the controller of all the world. Game over. You think that didn't witness to him? A dream, the dream's confirmed, and then they're showing him through scripture, that's you. That's you. Our prophet Daniel predicted you a long time ago. So you know what he did? He gave favor to Israel. He gave them things and, and, and said that they would be protected and no harm would come to them. And he left Israel alone. He was very pro-Israel, believe it or not. Just like Cyrus the Great was pro-Israel. Just like Nebuchadnezzar after his conversion was pro-Israel. This guy had seen the real scriptures and the truth, and he had had a vision from God himself. Now, I want you to think about that. Did that witness to Alexander the Great that he was predicted? The one thing that all religions don't have is predictive prophecy. Only the Bible has predictive prophecy. That had to astound him because none of the Greeks could have ever done that to him. None of the, their religions could have ever done They could have guessed and stuff, but no, no. Not as accurate as this is. And with a dream that actually went along with that? Keep that in your mind, okay? Keep that in your mind. This is the actual words of Alexander the Great for, for, for what happened here. I did not adore him, talking about God, but that God who hath honored him with his high priesthood. For I saw this very person in a dream, in this very habit or garment, when I was at Dios in Macedonia. Macedonia is back in Greece, okay? Who, when I was considering within myself how I might obtain dominion of Asia, exhorted me to make no delay, but boldly to pass over the sea thither, for that would, be, uh, would conduct my army, that he would conduct my army, and would give me the dominion over the Persians, whence it is, that having seen no other habit, and now seeing this person in it, talking about the high priest, and remembering that vision and the exhortation which I, I had in my dream, I believe that I bring this army under the divine conduct and shall therewith conquer Darius, and destroy the power of the Persians, that all the things will succeed according to what is in my own mind. You just heard Alexander the Great tell you what he thought. That's absolutely amazing. This is unprecedented in history, where the Bible predicts something, and this is going on in the guy's life, and he writes it down. Wow, I'm floored by it. I wonder if the guy came to faith. We'll see in just a bit. At age 32, Alexander had conquered the entire Near East. He was at the height of his career. His empire was 1.5 million square miles. But here's the thing, guys. He believed that Achilles and Hercules were his ancestors. So he then requires the provinces to worship him as God. On the way back from the east, after he does this, he catches fever on June 13th, 323 BC, and he dies. 
at 32 years old. You follow in the timeline. He had had this connection with God, a vision from God that God was going to give him the empires, that he was, God was going to make him ruler of the world, as Scripture predicted, right? They showed him Daniel 7. They showed him Daniel chapter 8. They even showed him uh, Daniel chapter 2, probably. And he was told that he would conquer. He even told you in his own words that because of this dream of what God had given him, that he would go ahead and conquer Darius. And yet... He requires people to worship him as God once he has conquered everything. And he's at the top of his game. And there's no more enemies. He then declares all the provinces to worship him as God. And immediately he's struck down. Um, The moment he declared himself to be God, he is struck down at age 32. Do you see the message in this? You can't miss it. God made him king of the world, and instead of giving honor to God, he declared himself to be God. Isn't that crazy? Why did Alexander reject the truth when it was so plain to him who gave him his power? Alexander, the brilliant military mind that you had, where do you think it came from? It was all set in motion by God's providence and you don't acknowledge the God who gave you that? Wow. Let's go through three things of why. And these are our applications. These are our our principles. Truth divides between what is real and what is not. Always. Alexander was shown the truth, guys, but he would not embrace it with all that evidence he had Because he crushed his fantasy. What was his fantasy? He was the new Hercules. He was the new Achilles. He was a god like Hercules and Achilles. He wouldn't give up the fantasy. And because he wouldn't give that that fantasy of, of reality up, he would not embrace reality of who he really was. Who was he? He was a human being created in the image of God that needed salvation, that needed to humble himself and acknowledge who the God of the universe is, and he wouldn't do it because he wanted to be God. Second, the truth hinders people from experiencing life as they want it. This is why people, when confronted with the truth, don't embrace it, don't love it. Why? It's the same as Alexander. Alexander decided he wanted to live by his own rules. See, if he had to submit to God, he had to submit to God's rules, didn't he? But Alexander wanted to be the God of the world, and so he wanted to make his own rules up. And his own rules would eventually kill him if, this, if whatever happened to him um, didn't happen. His own rules would have eventually killed him. Alexander was a drinker, by the way. Did you know that? Heavy, heavy alcoholic. Heavy. Drunk all the time especially when they weren't fighting. He was just drunk. This guy would have died cirrhosis of the liver by age 35 probably. He was such a heavy drinker, man. It was bad. So this is why some people think, well, yeah, he caught this fever, but some speculate he actually died of alcoholism um, 
And some people say, well, it's malaria or whatever. But anyway, there's, we don't know how he died. We just know he died after catching some, this type of fever. But again, there's speculation on it. But, but Alexander wanted to live his own way. Three, the truth was too painful. It meant that Alexander would have to humble himself and acknowledge that his success came from God, not himself, not his own ingenuity. He would have to admit weakness and dependency on God. And for those main reasons, and there's probably a lot more, guys, probably a lot more, but this is on the surface. When you read about his life and you see how God interacted with his life, these are the main reasons why he rejected God and then claimed to be God. What about the typology? I didn't go there yet. What's the typology? When you look at the beast system, the beast system's claws are made of bronze, which refer back to Alexander the Great and his fastness and swiftness of things happening. Dude, he took the empire. By age 32, from 20 to 32, he's king of the world. That didn't take very long. So the swiftness of Alexander the Great is going to be in the beast system and in the Antichrist. Alexander proclaims himself to be God, right? What does Antichrist do? Proclaims himself to be God. You see the typology? Amazing, isn't it? We will continue this, and what we'll see next week is what happens after Alexander the Great, and another typology pops up called the little horn. It's not Antichrist, but it is a typology of the Antichrist. But let's end on this. The point of showing you this passage about Alexander the Great is to show you there are no self-made humans. His whole life was providential. To where he was born, what father he had, the intellect he had, everything, the place of being born in Macedonia, everything was providential. So because of that, what you and I are supposed to recognize through all of this is that we are not self-made. In fact, our whole lives have been providential in getting us to this point and will continue. See, Alexander took matters in his own hands a lot of times. He did things the way he wanted to, and most of the time it was successful. But unfortunately, that's not the way to, to run life. We have to be dependent and humble before God as he leads us into our spiritual battles. And only then can you follow the true path. Alexander the Great, guys, is in hell today. He's in hell. We know it because he claimed to be God. That's it. He's in hell because of that. He never, he never got saved. And he got that close Disappointing, sad, isn't it? That's the message we have to continue to take out. We share the gospel because you never know when it's gonna be their time. It could be 32 years old like Alexander the Great. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, so much for what we can learn from Alexander and your prophecies of how accurate they are. Amazing. I'm just floored by it, Father, to see how detailed 
you said things would happen, which tells us that the things that haven't occurred yet will happen in same detail. Thank you, Father, for your word. It, it builds our faith up. It, help us, it helps us to know that you're in control providentially through it all. And everything is, a happen, ha, is happening in our personal lives according to your will. We thank you for that. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here that hasn't come to faith, they would do so today and not be like Alexander the Great. Not bump up close to God, see his scriptures, and then just walk away. Help them to see the, their need for Christ, that he died on a cross for their sins, was buried and rose on the third day, and gives eternal life to anyone who will believe. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.